Alrighty, welcome to another episode of Constructed Resources. I'm LSV, one of your hosts, and uh, alongside me is BK Andrew Beckstrom, our second host. What's up, BK? Oh, it's good to be back. How are you doing? Good, good. Yeah, so if you want the truth, uh, BK refused to record last week. So, no, uh, we, we, we did miss a week due to the timing of the Mythic Invitational and uh, Zendikar release. But we're back, and we got a lot of exciting stuff to talk about this week. Yeah, and you did pretty well at that tournament. You made top eight. I did, I did, actually. You know, I, I, I think I, I, I chalk it up to the fact that uh, BK helped me prepare, and we knew the ins and outs of the Jun Sack deck, and then that, that interview you did on CR really amped me up for the tournament. So, <laughs> But it was <laughs> yeah, nice. You played, you played well. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll give you credit where credit's due. Uh, there was a couple moments. I, mean, I remember the one game against Nasif, not the one in the at the end where you main-phased, or not main-phased, but you inside of collected... Inside of combat on your turn, collected company for a reclamation stage to blow up a witch's oven when Cauldron Familiar was coming back, so they couldn't use it with Midnight Reaper. And that was just a really impressive line to recognize that you had that sideboard card there, and I was totally blown away by it in the moment. So now that we've gotten the props out of the way, let's move on, please. please. <laughs> All right. Well, we're, we're going to get to uh, our show in just a second. Of course, Channel Fireball is our sponsor, and uh, one, of the, one of the things that CFB is doing that's pretty cool is the You Box It, We Buy It program. <laughs> So all you have to do is send us all the cards you want to sell. CFB will send you an offer. And if you don't like that offer, they'll send back the cards back to you at no cost to you. So if you go to channelfireball.com slash buy, you can take a look at the details. But a lot of folks have used it and found it very convenient. It's the easiest way for you to sell cards and you know, good, good value for them. So as for this week, we're going to be talking Zendikar Rising. You know, it's been out. Well, really, we've gotten our hands on it for about four or five days at this point in terms of playing. and. Uh, Kind of what we expect from the set, some of the standouts, uh, a, a kind of deep dive on double-faced cards because those are having a really big impact in both standard and limited, and they, they're a really almost a new card type that we that I think some people are having trouble evaluating. And then we got some cool decks of the week, and of course we are going to have to talk about Omnath for at least a little while. But don't worry, <laughs> don't, there'll be more of that coming. Uh, BK, why don't you tell us about our decks of the week? Yeah, so the first one is a really sweet sort of deck that's really only possible in this form because of the new modal double-faced cards. Uh, I really want to just call them flip lands, but maybe I'll, I don't know what to do about that exactly. It's, I, th- it's, I, think, it's a mouthful. I think flip lands works. I, I call them, you know, double-faced land or spell or lands. Or spell lands, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. So it's a Goblin Charbelter deck. So the big thing here is it takes advantage of the four-cost artifact Goblin Charbelter, which has three in a tap. You get to reveal cards on the top of your deck until you reveal a land card. And then you get to deal damage equal to each non-land revealed this way to target creature or player. And the big thing, and if the revealed card was a mountain, it deals double the damage instead. But the big thing that's going on with this deck is that basically if you can activate Goblin Charbelcher and have no lands in your deck, well, then you just deal your opponent e- damage equal to the number of, of cards in your deck. And so with the new modal double-faced cards, those are spells and not lands when they're in your deck. And when Goblin Charbelcher looks at them, it just sees a ton of spells. So we're talking about Turn Timber Symbiosis, Shatter Skull Smashing, and so we just completely round out a modern mana base with these flip lands, and then you get to just easily activate Goblin Charbelcher for the win, and then you can play with things like Simeon Spirit Guide and Blood Moon and just sort of have these extra ritual ways to sort of do things to disrupt your opponent when you don't exactly find the Charbelcher immediately. It's a deck that's seen a lot of success in Legacy over the years because there's a lot more of these non-land mana sources, and now with the modal double-faced cards, we're sort of getting that experience in modern for the first time. 
Yeah, people used to jump through all of these hoops in order to play Goblin Char Belcher and have it kill the opponent. We're talking one land Belcher decks that had land grants or zero land Belcher decks, you know, that had all impermanent mana sources. And they were just hoping to flip over their top seven and generate seven mana and, and kill the opponent. And they were generally not very consistent. Adding all these double face lands means that you actually just get to play a normal deck that just has a, a seven mana win the game that you can also pay in two installments. You can just cast Belcher past the turn and the next turn win the game too. This The really scary part about this deck, Luis, the one that just sends chills down my spine though, is recross the pass. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, tell us what this does because this is a ridiculous part of the deck. Well, I've never played with this card, so do you want to break it down first first a little bit? <laughs> sure. So Recross the Paths is two and a green. It's a sorcery. It's from Lorwyn or Morning Tide or one of those sets. And it says reveal the top card of your library. Reveal, reveal cards from the top of your library until you reveal a land. Put that into play and the rest on the bottom of your library in any order. And then you clash with an opponent. You reveal your top card. And if you win the clash, if your top card costs more than theirs, you return and Recross the Paths to your hand. All of that's irrelevant. What it basically says is it lets you reveal until you hit a land, in which case there will be none, so it's your whole deck, and then you put the the rest on the bottom of your library in any order. This is two and a green stack your deck in this deck. <laughs> it's It actually sounds miserable. I don't think that this uh, this deck necessarily is too good or anything like that, but if it becomes a consistent play experience to have to play against someone who has two and a green stack your whole deck, that is, that's not a fun turn to, to, to be on the other side of. <laughs> My favorite is that in the game one, you just stack your deck to set up the Charbelcher kill or potentially set up Reforge the Soul. That's the Miracle Wheel of Fortune from Avacyn Restored into the Charbelcher kill. But in post-sideboard games, you side in one copy of Collected Company and one copy of Thassa's Oracle. So that way you can just sort of do it. So you hit Undercity and Former, mill your entire deck off of the Collected Company, hit the Thassa's Oracle, and then you just win that way. And so this is just totally banana nuts deck. And this is kind of, we're going to be going more into the sort of the new space that these lands open up later on in the show. But that's sort of a sample of how degenerate things can get when we get into the more powerful formats like modern with them. Yeah, I mean, who'd have thought that (laughs) having cards with weird types and stuff could cause ripples. But I I overall am a fan of these cards. uh, And I actually think it's a positive for decks like this to exist. But they are are a wild ride. What's our second deck of the week? So it's Selesnia Auras. So we're sort of getting that Boggles experience in the Pioneer format. This deck won one of the Pioneer challenges this weekend. And the thing that's really going on here that's important is it's taking advantage of Branchloft Pathway. That's the green-white sort of dual land from the new Zendikar set. The big thing in Pioneer is that the allied colored decks did not have good untapped duels. They only had the Shocklands before now. And three of those combinations just picked up a great new dual land. So a deck like Selesnia Auras, which was hard to do before because you could do Temple Garden and maybe Mana Confluence, now just got another great land to add to their deck. So Green, white, green, red, and black, blue, those decks all got a lot better. You know, one of the things that when we were testing for the Pioneer PT a couple months ago, Luis, I said was, I don't want to put the Port Town cycle of lands in my deck. I don't want to have to register those. And at least for a deck like Blue Black Inverter of Truth and Pioneer, they would have absolutely killed to get something like one of these pathway lands. So all these sort of two-color decks, which are trying to get out of the gates fast in green, white, black, blue, and red, green, just got a major upgrade. We're now it's now going to be a lot easier in that format to do things like Lanaror Elves into Goblin Rabble Master. Yeah, I it, I think it's great. The having some color combinations with worse mana than others, I think, generally is not a, a particularly great gameplay experience. And so Pioneer decks getting good untapped lands for these new combinations just opens the field, which I think is, is sweet. 
blue white can still just be blue white, I guess, and deal with the fact that they'd get a million good to fairies and planeswalkers. Well, it, that's <laughs> just been the best deck in Pioneer for so long that you know it's really not even worth worth delving into. <sighs> All right, so for our main topic this week, we are going to be talking about Zendikar set. Zendikar Rising, and really what has happened in the early week of the the first week of the format. So just to give you all, and before we delve into individual lands and the double face cards, sort of the early metagame, the first couple of decks that have jumped out, well, first of all, Omnath. So if you haven't seen Omnath, that's the red, white, green, and blue new legendary version of Omnath. It's a cool thing that they're doing with Omnath. This is the fourth iteration we've seen of this character. The first one was green. The second one was red, green. Third one was red, green, blue, and now it's added white. So somewhere down the line. There's got to be a five-color Omnath. Yeah, we're going to get one of those. Uh, The big thing going on with this one, four mana, four, four, ETB draw card. When you play a land, if it's the first land you've played this turn, you get four life. The second land, you get to add red, green, white, and blue to your mana pool. And then the third landfall of the turn, you get to deal four damage to each opponent and each opponent's planeswalkers. So the... Big thing with this card is you just figure out how to ways to trigger it multiple times every turn that it's in play. It's always going to draw you a card immediately when you play it, and you just get to go bananas generating extra mana and using it to draw cards with things like Escape to the Wilds, casting Genesis Ultimatums, which are putting more Omnaths and landfalls into and more lands into play for landfall triggers. And the deck has just been an absolute force in the first weekend of Standard. Luis, what's your early impression been? Well, my early impression is that, like, these all these cards that combine together do pretty busted things, but they're also all individually very good and low risk. I, I think that Omnath drawing a card is kind of like the cherry on top, where you play this card because you know you've got all the synergy. You're trying to you put multiple lands into play to add more mana to to do more things. But at the core, it's a four mana four four that draws a card. So when you play Omnath and your opponent kills it, you're still up a card. <laughs> it's just absurd. I actually. Uh, I responded to a tweet from uh, Patrick Chapin about a week and a half ago. Uh, his point was like, original Zendikar had 13 cards that said draw a card, and Zendikar Rising has 47. And, yeah. And my response was like, I wish we got to play games of Constructed that felt like resource battles, but it just doesn't happen anymore. No one ever runs out of cards. <laughs> Actually, the double-faced lands are going to contribute to that. You know, that, that that's going to be more of the theme. And stuff like Omnath, Uro, of course... You know, all these cards that all draw cards mean that you have things that matter in Constructed, right? It's not like it's not just random who wins people, you know, whether you're able to deploy your threats better and get better value from your cards so that you're ahead on board. All that stuff matters a lot. But it's not that it's really a war of attrition. It used to be that you could play a games of Constructed and you'd have to conserve your removal or you'd have to use it wisely or try to set up a two for one. You're like, wow, I got an Electrolyze off. That's, That's huge for me. Now it's like no one ever runs out of cards, so it's just who plays more cards. And Omnath, of course, does all of that, right? It gains you life, draws you cards, adds mana, lets you play more cards, kills all their cards, et cetera, et cetera. So the biggest thing for me is that every card in this deck like basically draws a card. Like Lotus Cobra doesn't, but Omnath does, Escape to the Wilds does, Genesis Ultimatum does, Uro, of course, does. So you're going to have a hard time beating this deck by grinding out their resources, doesn't mean the deck's unbeatable, though it does seem like it is the best thing going on. I mean, it is right now. I really don't want to be week one. This format solved, and it's and and you know, and we all know what it is, and let's just move on. But man, Omnath is a really good card, and all the cards in that deck are all very strong. It's not a surprise to me that they're combined in such a way. 
The two big things that jumped out to me are one, holy cow, for life for your first landfall each turn with Omnath is a ton. And you're almost always playing multiple lands a turn thanks to things like Escape to the Wilds, uh, Fabled Passage, Evolving Wilds works with it. And for, But that for life, like... I remember when Corsa of Crucifix was in standard, it was like, wow, this is a real sizable roadblock. It's a 2-4 and it gains you some life and sometimes it combines with Siege Rhino and so now you might need to deal like upward in the range of like 26, 27 damage to win the game. <laughs> a couple of turns of Omnath in play and your opponent is at like 40 life or something because oftentimes you're playing a second Omnath and still getting more triggers. And the second thing is that for a deck which manages to draw tons of cards, it does an incredible job of closing out the game. I've seen people win on turn four literally win the game on the fourth turn of the game because you just have so much ability to keep generating more mana with Lotus Cobra, additional Omnaths, Escape to the Wilds, that you can use things like Felidar Retreat, Ugin, tons of different ways to just potentially close out the game in an accelerated fashion. And so sometimes within a, a deck that can draw lots of cards, it gives you this window to build to some sort of game-winning combo on the other side. The Omnath deck is definitely not that. If you just ignore them and be like, go ahead, have your fun, ramp a little, draw some cards, I'll kill you in like turn seven, eight, or nine. That will not fly here. Yeah, and it was funny. I was watching uh, the CFB Pro Showdown last week, and it's like turn four, and the commentators are talking about how this game might go to decking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the mirror can be pretty wild. In the CFB Pro Showdown, um, in fact, the finals, uh, game one, a player did lose just for running out of cards. Yeah. <laughs> At the end of the game, their hand was like escape to the wilds, Genesis ultimatum, Uro, a couple more like cantripping effects that they just literally couldn't play because it would deck them on the spot. Yep. So that, that, that's the first week of standard. It's pretty wild. Uh, <laughs> there, there's a couple more things going on besides just Omnath though. Omnath is like, it's kind of like, uh, if you want to say that you should play something other than Omnath, you have to show your work. The, the burden of is on you now to justify not putting Omnaths in your deck. Uh, that said, you you could play uh, Teamer Adventures, the Lucky Clover Edgewall Innkeeper deck with Omnath in it. That that deck actually fits kind of nicely. Beanstalk Giant is a good combo with Omnath. Uh, Fae of Wishes actually can be pretty nice too when you have access to tons of mana and resources. Fae of Wishes can get some real game breakers. So that one's cool. Monored Embercleave is still there, though. I really have a hard time seeing how this deck's going to succeed when, when you know, their opponent gets a four-mana <laughs> Siege Rhino Mole Drifter <laughs> uh, split card that, that gains a bunch of life. Yeah, the Gruel versions have looked a little more impressive to me. Uh, one of the new cards that we'll be touching touching on is Kazandu Mammoth, and that's that 3-3 three, three double-faced card that can with Landfall gets plus two, plus two, and combining that card with Embercleave can be a really big game that can deal a huge chunk of damage relatively early on. Especially, yeah, if you spike a Fabled Passage or something like that. <laughs> You're just 6-16ing six, right. them just off the Mammoth. And it doesn't really ask a whole lot you, of you besides just having one other creature in play early in the game. Uh, another card that has impressed that can go in both these decks by those Red Cap Melee. It, mm. it can kill Omnath at instant speed for one mana to mitigate the damage dealt and the problem is if they play Omnath, I guess you can kill it in response to the trigger so they never get to gain the four, which is pretty nice out of a, out of an aggro deck. Like it, that, Yes, that is one of those funny things is the ETB draw card ability will sometimes be downside because you won't be able to play a land before your opponent gets priority. Yeah, so that that part is cool. And then there is the other, the Nasif approach. He's been playing on his stream, uh, Blue Black Control, Demir Control, with the kind of assumption or assertion rather that... If you can counter 
their expensive spells, their escapes, and their Genesis ultimatums and kill their Omnaths, then you can actually beat the the deck that's playing all these expensive spells because counter spells tend to be exp- good against expensive spells. The main issue I have with that is that it used to be that these decks use a combination of counters and removal. The problem is if you let anything resolve, you're, you're going to get buried. So it's got to have a lot of counters and counters are really bad against people who have stuff in play. So finding the right balance is tough, though. If anyone can do it, Nassif would, would be the person who finds the kind of the right build. Yeah, and you'll need to be careful that you don't sort of fall a week behind in the metagame because right now we did lose Hydrid Crisis as a way to sort of be good against counter spells and still draw cards. But there is still Uro, so you got to make sure you have sort of a permanent answer to deal with that. And then there is still Shark Typhoon. So if Counterspells ever do get too good, Shark Typhoon will be a huge punish out of the ramp decks against that kind of strategy. Yeah, so that's kind of where we're at. Initial, you know, the initial couple of days of standard, and man, it moves fast. You know, these days uh, there, it's two days in, and people are talking about bans, which I think is a little excessive. But also, I understand why that is the the, the place people go. You know, when 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 the only way to solve a lot of these formats is to ban cards over the last you know year year and a half, it's not surprising to me that people then call for bans even prematurely because that's that that's what we've been taught is the way to solve formats that need solving. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. so let's talk about these uh, these double faced cards. Uh, they're a really interesting set of cards and something that uh, we really haven't seen much of. We've we've obviously seen cards that can be used in different ways, modal cards, right? And we've even seen, uh, you know, like split cards kind of let you cast both halves or whatever. This is the first time we have this, I guess, Z- Z- Noetic Caverns was the was the first one or Zoetic Caverns. The It was the the land that taps for colors that you can morph out of like Time Spiral or Planar Chaos. I guess it had to be Future Sight. But um, this is a whole a whole ton of them. I actually wrote down all the ones that I thought you know, were, were more interesting. And it's still like 20 cards. I don't know how many are for, it's like 30 something cards total. It feels like. And what these let you do is they let you up your land count, which means you're going to make, you're going to hit your third, fourth, fifth land drop way more reliably when you're playing 32 lands or 30 lands or whatever, but also not run too short on spells. You, Cause these can all be cast as, as a spell as well. It doesn't mean that uh, you, these cards, are all great because to some degree you can't put six mana four or five trample into your constructed deck, right? Even that's one of the flip cards. That's just that's just not really gonna work out. But it does let you play things like Spike Field Hazard, one mana deal one. That's just a great card right now because you can play it as a tapped mountain, or you can ping a Lotus Cobra. And it, it meet the opportunity cost of having a one mana deal one is so much lower when you get to buy out of it by just playing it as a land. So I don't think we've even scratched the surface of how deck construction is going to change once once these cards see more and more play. Yeah, and especially given the nature of the early standard format, it's it's a lot harder to fully take advantage of them. When there is a deck that might be as dominant as the Omnath deck in the early going, we don't really get to explore the nuances of exactly how powerful it is in a slightly longer, more interactive game to have something like Seagate Restoration or a Marius Call to play on turn seven. But why don't we start there, though, with that mythic cycle that I just named two of. So the biggest cycle in the set, the one that is probably going to have the longest reach across formats, whether it's everything from legacy, vintage, anything. I mean, I already put I already put a bunch of these into the Pioneer deck I've been testing, or a historic deck I've been testing, the Jones Sack deck. 
Yep. So we're talking about the mythic cycle. So there's one for each color. They and they the land instead of coming into play tapped, you have the option to pay three life to have it come into play untapped. So why don't we just start off with my favorite? I the one I think is the best of the cycle, Agadim's Awakening. And that one is X black black black. So triple black and an X, and you can play up to X creatures with different mana costs of X or less from your graveyard. And so this card is the spell. It's very reminiscent of the spell that just rotated out, Gruesome Menagerie, which was 3BB. You can return a 1, 2, and a 3. Agadim's Awakening is mostly a little bit worse. But the thing with Gruesome Menagerie was that if you didn't exactly have your graveyard filled up in the right way at the right time, well, that card just didn't do very much for you. And it could never go bigger than 3. Agadim's Awakening sacrifices a little bit of efficiency with an incredible ability to just be a land for you when you're missing land. And if you draw multiples, fantastic. If you drew multiple gruesome menageries, you were stuck with them and the second one probably did nothing. You draw two Agadim's Awakenings, you could just play one and now the other one is more likely to be powered up. And I, I think this card is just going to do a tremendous amount of work for any kind of black creature deck in any format. And it could even be potentially powerful with something like Death Shadow, where you get to take advantage of both the fact that Death Shadow is a powerful like one-drop worker, and you're paying three life to shrink your health total early on in the game. Yeah, it's just wild how little the opportunity cost is if you have, like, for example, any copies of Basic Swamp in your deck. You have to think long and hard as to why you would play that over, over Agadim's Awakening slash Crypt of Agadim, because it's a really, really powerful effect. It's... Getting a, a top deck bomb on turn 10 in Constructed instead of just drawing a land is just absurd. And, and in Historic, I've already had a good time getting back. A, you know, you can get back a Mayhem Devil, a Blood Artist, and a Collagen Familiar for, for six mana. And then that usually just wins you the game while also just filling a land slot and not really costing you a whole lot there. I I think Agadim's Awakening is really cool and will push people to like diversify costs of their creatures and get this good creature synergy combo stuff going while also just being good in basically any black deck that has creatures in it. Yeah, and I like the incentives too. With something like Agadim's Awakening, it puts a little bit more pressure on players to not just play the ones, twos, and threes that curve out the best, that are the best on that early turn of the game but incentivizes you to think long and hard about the opportunity cost of maybe playing a one drop, which scales well into the late game. Culture Familiar is a fantastic example of that. Something like Blood Artist as well. If you're just bringing back some two drop that's a good attacker, well, that's not going to be quite as good as bringing back something with a little more value. So it gives a little bit more texture, even for the black aggro decks that are just kind of free rolling this about what kind of early creatures they might want to play. Uh, next up, you know, the, we've got Shatter Skull Smashing. That's the red, red X, deal X damage, divided as you choose among uh, two creatures or planeswalkers. And uh, what you, if X is six or more, it actually deals twice X damage instead. So, and, and of course, you know, it's a pay three life or enters a battlefield tap Redland. And this is uh, another good, really good, good option for decks that are playing mountains and especially aggressive decks. Aggro decks in general pay less costs for these because they don't care about the three life very much. So having Shatter Skull Smashing as like a potent five to six mana play out of Mono Red, it's actually a little reminiscent of Obosh. Not exactly in the way that like Obosh was just a broken magic card back when Companion didn't cost three to get, but more in the way that these red decks could be built such that they had a good low curve and then knew that they had a good five mana play on five. 
Shatter Skull Smashing is less synergy, but still very, very good for the deck that doesn't really want five mana in play, so it can play a bunch of these, and then now when it does flood out a little and it draws one of these, it just has a, a really good escape clause. Yeah, and even that card is just both uber powerful if you get a ton of mana, but there's so much tactical things you can do with it. One of the best creatures in standard, it looks like, is going to be Lotus Cobra. And the fact that you could just on the third turn of the game, maybe after they play their Lotus Cobra on their turn two and they were on the draw, you get to kill that Lotus Cobra and it didn't get to even do anything for them. And the fact that you're getting to use one of your lands to remove one of their most hard to deal with threats gives you just additional flexibility. And I love the fact that it's going to give new context to cards like Chandra Torch of Defiance. That's been a very powerful Planeswalker we've seen from red decks in all of the older formats. And now it's, this is just one more way for you to use that, pl- that plus ability to gain two red mana this turn to potentially just wipe out multiple threats at once. Yeah, Shatter Skull Smashing is going to put a lot of pressure. Actually, the combination of Shatter Skull Smashing and Spike Field Hazard is going to put a lot of pressure on low toughness creatures because getting your board smashed for four mana, killing two one toughness creatures is going to be really hard to recover from. Next up, let's talk about Turn Timber Symbiosis. So this is the green one of the cycle. And what Turn Timber Symbiosis does is it looks at the top... Is it six, Luis? I just want to make sure I... Uh, Turn Timber Symbiosis is the top seven cards. Top seven, nice. So you get to put a creature from among them onto the battlefield. And if that one had CMC three or less, it enters with three additional plus one, plus one counters. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. So the first thing I want to name with this card is Primeval Titan. Because Primeval Titan decks love to put Primeval Titan into play. And so just the fact that you have yet another way to add consistency to your Primeval Titan decks at a relatively low cost is absolutely enormous. I mean, if you look at a deck like Amulet Titan in Modern, where that deck takes advantage of the fact that you can use the Transmute Land Teleria West to get a zero-cost card from your deck, to get Summoner's Pack, to put Primeval Titan into play, so then next turn you can pay some more mana to pay again for the Pact. You get an idea of how powerful something like Primeval Titan must be if you're willing to go through all these hoops. And for Turn Timber Symbiosis, the hoop that you have to go through is put a green land into your deck that will come into play untapped when you need it, and otherwise could just function and give you mana. And then if you ever just are stumbling you don't have the tools you need can actually dig for that awesome combo piece that you might need it's also just again such a low cost way to get a lot of extra value the 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 part where these lands do start to diminish a little bit is that they don't work with the castles because they they don't count as the basic land type of their type and in older formats they don't work with things like dragon skull summit like i have run into that where you do have to balance it because these don't count as basics but I just can't imagine not playing some amount of these in almost any deck, especially ones that don't typically have good high end. Like the standard Gruul deck, I think just loves to see these. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the real sign for how powerful and low cost putting this card in your deck is. Just a deck like Gruul Aggro that potentially is only playing 16 lands and then all double faced lands after that is still playing a seven drop spell because it can just be a land whenever you need it so easily. And That'll sort of give you a sense for how to frame your thinking about. The burden of proof, honestly, is that you should be playing with these in your deck to start. And if you find that you are absolutely never using its ability or need more basic lands, then you should start cutting them. But that's the position that I'm starting from. Yeah, you you have to have a good excuse as to why you're not making it so 4 to 12 of your lands also double as spells. 
the the coolest place I've seen turn timber symbiosis show up so far is in the Neoform deck in Modern, the one that cheats Grizzlebrand into play because this is a land that is green technically because it's a spell for <laughs> you can pitch it to Allosaurus Rider to get that into play. And when you have Nourishing Soul, you could pitch this to gain seven life with it. That, so, that's absurd. It's yes. like that deck can never cast this card. It's still good in the deck somehow. It's got to be incredibly good in the deck. Oh, it's a huge, it's a huge boon for the deck. Uh, to, to, to round these out, we've got, got uh, Emeria's Call. So that's the, the white one. And it's four white, white, white. It's sorcery. And it makes two four four flying angel warriors. And then also non-angel creatures you control gain indestructible until your next turn. And what I love about this one is it lets you overextend into a control deck and not really worry. Yes, if they have a sweeper, it can kill the angels, but it, but it keeps everything else alive. So it's a way to add a bunch of pressure while kind of daring them to have some kind of wrath. Of course, something like Languish or Extinction Event can get around it, but it, it does give you a, a lot of uh, extra power. This one, I think, is going to have a little bit harder time seeing play just because the white decks are a little less likely to be a focused aggro deck. If there's a white weenie deck, that, that that might change. But, you know, Gruul has red and green lands that are great for it. I don't know if there's a white-based aggressive that, that can take advantage right now, but it is still a very, very good card. Yeah, 4-4 four, four flyers are sort of exactly kind of what you want in the late game. So if you can have a deck that's that gets to seven mana often enough, Amaria's Call is going to do some good work for you there. It reminds me of Wingmate Rock, where that one just kind of seemed innocuous on the surface, but every time you played it, it was just like, I have to do with two four-toughness flyers now? That's so much. And yeah, so I'm, I'm expecting Amaria's Call to show up, but maybe not as much as the first couple we named. And the worst one, I think, by far, yet still playable, still seeing play, is uh, Seagate Restoration. So this is the blue one. It's four blue, blue, blue. It's a sorcery. And you draw cards equal to the number of cards in your hand plus one, and you have no maximum hand size for the rest of the game. So the, the conflict here is that by the time you cast this, how many cards do you have in your hand? And if you have a lot of cards, why are you spending seven mana to not affect the board? But guess what? Uh, an, a, a, an island that you can even pay three life to play on tap that doubles as a seven mana draw four. That's still that's still a good card. That's still something you want. And I've also seen it in decks that are trying to have no lands in them for in older formats for like Belcher related reasons, for example, where Seagate Restoration is a blue land, which is pretty valuable. This is the time when we obligatory note that this is, in fact, a blue card and can be pitched to force effects. Oh, yeah, that it sure can. Having one of your lands that you can pitch to forces, that's great. So this one's going to see play just like all of these, and uh, they, they, they have, they're going to have a big impact. We're going to see the reverberations of these, I think, in Constructed across all formats for quite some time. And you can buy them all at ChannelFireball.com. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, like these, these lands are... No, you, you are really can buy them at Channel Fireball. You're total, you totally, totally, totally yeah. true. <laughs> Not that, that part is serious. But I mean, this is like... This is kind of in the range of companions in that it's going to be hard for them to sort of outdo these or replace these or re- make it so you don't want these. And so you're just going to consistently want these in older formats forever from now on. So... Get them, get them and get as many as you can because you will not run out of ways to use them. Not at all. Uh, so the other the other ones, it gets actually more interesting rather than less when the land only comes into play tapped, when you don't have the pay three life option. Because we're talking about how much we like Agadim's Awakening. And if it was just an ETB tapped swamp or Agadim's Awakening and not the pay three life option, we'd have a lot harder time justifying it in like mono black aggro or, you know, even the John Sack deck, that deck doesn't really like uh, ETB tap lands, but 
the ones that uh, you can pay through life to get out of it, you have to, it's really high burden of proof, like you said, BK, to not play these. The ones that come to play tap, you actually have to want the card a fair amount. Like the, the threshold drops or raises significantly to put the card in your deck. Like the mono red decks would not be playing Shatter Skull Smashing all willy nilly if it came into play tap, but it, it doesn't. So they're, they're happy with it. So the other ones can be broken up into a couple different categories. Uh, one is, and the biggest one actually is removal. And what we're talking about here, we're talking about uh, all the cards that interact with the, the opponent's stuff. The best one of these appears to be Spike Field Hazard. This is red instant deal one, or, or it's a tap land. It also uh, exiles a permanent that's dealt damage that dies this turn. So you can Spike Field Hazard their Uro when they play it on turn three so to exile it. Granted, you're still getting two for one there, but maybe that's sometimes the best you can do. Yeah, the thing that jumps out to me with Spike Field Hazard is just how sort of different the situations are when I want each mode and how well they sort of line up together in a smooth way. When your opponent is just playing some early one drops that can attack you that have only one toughness or, you know, Lotus Cobras or doing something with one toughness, Spikefield Hazard is exactly what you want. You want to be able to kill it. You want to be able to kill it fast, instant, just get it over with, get it out of the way. But when your opponent doesn't have those kinds of cards, isn't attacking you as fast, playing a tap lane is totally okay. You're probably safe. So you get that real nice harmony between the two situations when you want each mode there. Yeah, and that's part of the reason I think this isn't seeing so much play. It, it's kind of a win-win in, in that spot. Uh, one, of the, one that I find kind of interesting is Kazul's Fury. So this is two in a red instant. Sack a creature, deal damage equal to its power to any target. And this is one that... Uh, it's a powerful effect, but narrow enough that you don't usually want to put it in your deck. I could actually see this card doing some good work out of uh, any deck that has kind of big creatures in it. Like, you can't afford a lot of copies of this, but having, like, a copy of this in your Kazandu Mammoth Gruel decks doesn't seem unreasonable to me. Yeah, I, th- this is my favorite sort of design of these lands, the one where it gives you this niche effect that you kind of always really wanted in these decks. Like, if you're playing with Beanstalk Giant or Kazandu Mammoth, man, you, you know what it's like when you wish you had a fling effect, but it's tough because it's hard to justify it because it's the floor in that effect is so low. And so being able to give you an easy opt-out of just playing it as a land just allows you to expand your options, expand your versatility in how you play the games. And so for that reason, Kazul's Fury, I think, is going to be one that's going to see quite a bit of play during its time in Standard at the very least, if not in older formats where you have a red deck that has the capability of having larger creatures in play. Yeah, a lesser reward for having larger creatures is another one, Conley Ambush. This is the two and a green uh, instant makes one of your creatures fight one of their creatures because the payoff is just not the same. You don't just get to kill your opponent. You just get to kill one of their creatures. That said, Conley Ambush, I think, could also see some some decent play given, you know, it's good with something like Questing Beast. I could see a mono green aggro deck wanting to use this as removal. Next up, we've got the sensor of the set, Jawari Disruption. <laughs> One in a blue, counter-target spell unless its controller pays one and you can play it as a blue tap land. So, Luis, is this card better or worse than Sensor? This card's much, much, much worse than Sensor. It's it's a shame. I love, I love a good Sensor. The problem is when Sensor is bad, you cycle it for a new card. When this is bad, the island part is also often bad. It's it's not a good top deck late game. Like 
the the ones that are the best well the ones that are the best are the ones that come to play and tap and have great spells in them but the ones that tend to be good are cards that are uh good in the right situations and also decent when you don't need lands anymore and to some degree spike field hazard fails that test when you don't need lands the, the deal one's often not that good but it's really good in the early game Whereas things like Kazandu Mammoth are just a really good card. You're not really unhappy to draw that at most points. Jawari Disruption doesn't quite get there, but it's still good enough as a two-drop counter that lets you play additional lands in a in a control deck that's going to be really mana-hungry that I would not count it out. Yeah, I think it'll still see some amount of play, but I agree. Just not being able to sort of like use the mana on the same card that you were holding it up for like you could with Sensor is just a big deal. I'm a big fan of uh, Hagra Mauling. This is the two black black instant, and uh, it destroys target creature. It also has a really weird clause, which I actually don't love. Uh, it says this spell costs one less to, if, uh, to cast if an opponent controls no basic lands. That's a kind of weird counting thing to do that often won't be true. And when it is true, the payoff is your four mana removal costs three mana. I don't know. I'm, I, I think the, deck, the, the card would be just a lot cleaner of a design if it just didn't have that on there. But... Yeah, so allegedly the reason was is they just wanted to have some amount of cards and effects that checked basics, so it wasn't... Con- it w- you could point to that and be like, well, it's not a total free roll to just play with all <laughs> mythic lands and path off-color pathways and nonsense like that. Yeah, if that's what you wanted, make it so they have to discard a card if they have no basic lands or, you know, they they, they, they you drain them for two or something. This is just... Make them actually feel yeah, it. Yeah, this is just such an invisible payoff. That said, this is a, a great removal spell because kind of like Spikefield Ambush, you get to buy out of this... In matchups where you don't need a removal, lands are often going to be better. Imagine a control mirror where you've got Hagra Maulings and, and they have all eliminates. Like, you're just going to run over them. But uh, it, it's not as efficient as some of the other cards. So it, it is very good, though. I think this card's going to see uh, uh, see it's it, plenty of time in the sun. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that Hagra Mauling just offers is some counterbalance to Heartless Act. And if you're a black deck that is relying on Heartless Act as your primary black removal and you get to select a card with a non-land card with CMC three or greater, and they discard that card. And the big thing that's going on here, you know, black tap land on the other side is it just gives you sort of a lower cost way of having some discard in your deck that might be trying to stave off something like a big combo deck. So if you're playing some sort of black mid range or aggro deck and you want to have some kind of duress action, but you don't want to have that consistently, well, then you can play Palaka Predation and then maybe you can snag their Genesis Ultimatum something of that nature. Yeah, it's also just another good tool for control decks that don't mind extra lands. I think there, there's kind of two ways to approach these. Uh, one is that the aggro decks love the pay three life version because that lets them buy out of their their extra lands really cheaply and they, they love not getting flooded. Then there's control decks that are just actually happy to put 30 lands in their deck and make sure they never miss a land drop and this, these give them the extra flexibility to do that without just getting flooded. So it's cool. Everyone kind of gets something out of this. So next up, we've got the sort of the ones we've dubbed the utility flipped lands. So these are lands which are sort of giving you some kind of extra draw smoothing, some sort of other niche effect that you might want in games. And so the first one we want to talk about is Bala Ged Recovery. So this is a green tapped land and you could just for three mana, you can return target card from your graveyard to your hand at sorcery speed. So, you know, regrowth is the kind of effect we've seen before. Usually costs two. This one costs, you're paying one more. But the ability in longer games, when you top deck your land, it's almost going to feel like a demonic tutor, this card. 
it, I kept looking for return target permanent because I did I just did not believe initially that this was any card. But yeah, this can pick up your Genesis Ultimatum. You know, this can pick up anything you want. And one of the cool decks I got to try out uh, uh, initially was uh, a red green landfall deck that Sam Black made that had like thirty odd, thirty four land, thirty six lands. I don't know some some very large amount of lands because just had tons of these where it lets you just never miss a land drop, but also you have these cards that let you kind of replace themselves as spells. And Balagan Recovery was one of the more impressive ones. It actually is. It's not a card you probably want tons of because their diminishing returns are really high, but the first one or two is adds just a lot of breadth to your deck where it can recover from situations that would be very difficult for a lot of decks to recover from. Yeah, I think this is going to be Matt Nass's favorite land from this set because a very frequent phenomena when building sort of combo-ish decks in older formats with him is that, you know, we're lo- always looking for ways to increase our consistency and resiliency, but then it's kind of tough because it's like, do I really want to be playing with this effect that's rebuying something if I get discarded? Whereas I could just try to go for raw speed so I can outrace more people. And Balagator Recovery helps you sort of thread that needle really well in that you get that green tap land that you could potentially play in something like your Lotus Field deck early. Maybe just sack it to the Lotus Field. But then in the longer games, you could pick up a key combo piece to go with your Lotus Field. So I, I think this land is going to be absolutely phenomenal for those sorts of strategies. In addition to just general green mid-range Sultai-ish decks that want to be able to dig for an extra sort of copy of a card they played earlier in the game. Yeah, also Matt Nass loves playing the like one win condition, no way to get it back yes. sort of decks. and th- th- Very good <laughs> helping with that problem. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then we've also got uh, Saloon Division. So this is two in a blue. It's an instant. Let's say look at your top six cards in your library and reveal an instant or sorcery and put it into your hand. So this kind of cycles in the sense that it just all it does is replace itself, but it gives you a little selection. And in a spell dense deck is a is a really good way to to kind of get some value out of your land here, where you're not just getting a random card. In fact, you don't even know what effect you're getting, but you're getting a spell. You're getting an instant or sorcery, assuming you hit. Yeah, and I think this is another one that's just going to be a total hit uh, in a variety of formats because it, once again, we've got both modes sort of synergizing and harmonizing well, depending on which stage of the game at and what kind of game you're in. You're missing lands, play it as a land. You're missing action, use it to dig for key action in a control deck, whether it's the right type of removal effect, in a combo deck, the right kind of combo piece among your spells. So you're absolutely getting what you want and when you want it. Total contrast to Drawry Disruption because it just totally misses the situations where you have plenty of lands, they have plenty of lands, and it doesn't do anything for anyone. This card exactly gets you sort of what you need and when you need it. So, you know, obviously the cost of playing tap lands and a three-mana dig effect, there is some opportunity cost. But in, just in terms of doing the right things at the right time, Salon Division absolutely checks the box. And then uh, the, one of the last utility cards is a uh, Sejuri Shelter. This is the one in a white instant. It gives a uh, target creature you control against the protection from the color of your choice this turn. And this is one that really rewards uh, kind of aggressive or mid-range decks that have tons of creatures. Because for too many, you're trading for a removal spell. You're potentially winning a combat. And the most exciting part, I think, is it just makes a creature unblockable in a lot of situations. This is the kind of card that will let you set up some nice like game-ending attacks. Yeah, this card can do quite a few things. Um, I think what this card is sort of missing is you're going to have to find the right home for it. And not a lot of decks sort of have two, three, and four drops that you really want to sort of hold up two mana to protect them before you play them. 
one example I can think of the kind of deck is what any deck that had like sort of white and collected company, that's a good deck to imagine Sajiri Shelter doing well in. If you're playing with green and white, you know, sort of mid-range value creatures, I'm thinking about something like Tireless Tracker. Well, then it's a very a great play pattern it might be something like on turn five, play Tireless Tracker, play a land, get a clue, and now have Sajiri Shelter up. And now you actually feel really good about that you're protecting something that's worth investing in. I think if you're just trying to protect your random two-mana, just good attacking creature, Sejiri Shelter is going to fall a little bit. Those decks typically rely on curving out. The tap land, you're going to feel the cost a little bit more there. So you might only want like maybe one or two copies and that sort of strategy. But if you get a mid-range deck that's got good creatures in the mid-range to protect, I could see playing a bunch more of this card. Yeah, and a big key, like you mentioned, is having uh, mana sinks. The Tireless Tracker example is great, actually, because if they don't do something that makes you cast Shelter, you just crack the clue into their turn. Tireless Tracker actually wins a lot from these, doesn't it? Because you're you're never missing your land drops when you've got tons of these. Yes. Uro, Tireless Tracker, if you like putting extra lands into play, Zendika Rising on sale now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then the last category uh, is Threats. Uh, the, the one that I'm the most excited about is uh, Kazandu Mammoth. We, we mentioned this briefly earlier. Three mana, three, three, landfall, plus two, plus two. It's uh, one green, green. And uh, this is just a three mana, five, five for attacking decks that also can just be played as your land. Like... <laughs> Kazandu Mammoth uh, is the real deal. I actually was trying to fit it into the historic company deck, but the double green was too much as a way to get additional company hits without cutting into the the, the spells I wanted to play in the deck. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's the biggest thing holding Kazandu Mammoth back, and in particular in standard. I think the card on the surface just is absolutely phenomenal. The dual lands we have right now, like the temples, the temples are fine, but there's a lot of sort of contested ground for which tap lanes you're going to play. And then the pathways are really powerful and really good. They're not great at helping you cast double cast, double cost cards like Kazanu Mammoth, which is one green green since you sort of have to choose up front, which one you want to get. Um, but nonetheless, Kazanu Mammoth does, does exactly what a landfall aggro deck or a, even just a regular mid range deck wants to do, which is have threats when you need a threat and have a land when you need a land. And that kind of draw smoothing just at such a low cost I mean, I can't even imagine. Imagine if we got like a zero cost spell that just helped you dig for either a creature or land, depending upon when you need it. Like that card would get just get banned almost immediately. Like I don't think they would even print. <laughs> yeah, it. there's no way. Like that that that's just like completely out of bounds. <laughs> uh, and then tangled fluorohedron. This is one I'm a little bit lower on. This is one at a green for a one one that can just tap for a green mana, and then the backside is tap for a green. The biggest thing I have sort of two major issues with this one, which is first of all one. It's sort of giving you the same thing all the time. Yes. When you have mana and you have plenty of it, this card just doesn't kind of do like Jawari Disruption. Yes. The second thing is that I think people in general set too low of a bar for two mana creatures, especially in standard. Most of them, like if you look at like the last five to seven years, just did not see heavy standard play. Some of them saw a good amount, and then some of them, like Paradise Druid and Sylvan Carry, did saw an absolute ton. Because one of the things you should really be hoping for is that it does something beyond just giving you mana. Multiple colors, it can attack for a little bit, it can do a little bit of blocking, it can protect itself some. And Tangled Florahedron just does absolutely none of those things. So if you are playing a deck that just absolutely needs a way to get some acceleration at sort of a relatively low opportunity cost, you want to smooth it out that way, Tangled Florahedron is a totally fine card to play. I just would not expect it to be an all-star because I think like the two-drop actual creature mode is just too far below the bar for what you could hope for to get out of turn two. Yeah, the the, the effects I like most are super narrow but powerful in that spot, right? Like the Spike Field Hazard, Kazul's Fury, 
or really good in the late game like Balaget Recovery or Academe's Awakening. The ones that are kind of in the middle on that, like Jawari Disruption and Tangled Florahedron, and even and even to some degree, say Jerry Shelter, are not. You know, they're not they're not the cards that I have the highest uh, upside for. Like they're not the ones that I that I have the highest hopes with. Yeah, the promise of Tangled Florahedron is that it helps smooth you out, but the reality is is that it's a tapped mana source. Like it consistently doesn't give you mana the turn that you draw it, and Forest just does that better in a lot of situations. So. I, I, it's going to show up and you're going to play it some, but I don't think this is going to be like a green staple that every green deck plays, which I've seen some people suggest anyway. So those are the, those, oh, there's actually one more glass pool mimic. This one's kind of interesting. This is the two and a blue. It's a shapeshifter rogue. And it, when it enters the battlefield, you can, uh, or you may have it enter the battlefield as a copy of a creature you control, except it's a shapeshifter rogue in addition to its other types. So a three mana clone is, is, is not weak. You can only, you can only copy your side of the board, but Having your land be a three mana potentially high value card is pretty cool, and uh, as we're going to talk about in just a second, it it opens the door for combo decks to play more combo pieces without without losing out on on good deck slots. So keep an eye on Glass Pool Mimic. I think that one is going to see a, a, a fair amount of play as well. Yeah, it, it cheats mana. Like that's the easiest way to say it. If you can play four, five, and six mana creatures and then copy it for only three, you're just cheating the mana system in a sense. Um, and so having some way to sort of mitigate when those creatures aren't in play by playing it as a tap plan is a great way to go about things. So we we both picked out a bunch of cards we wanted to discuss as well, take a little a little closer look at. Uh, let's start going through them. I think number one has to be Confounding Conundrum. So, so <laughs> this is the uh, one in a blue. It's an enchantment. When it enters the battlefield, you draw a card. And whenever a land enters the battlefield under an opponent's control... If that player had another land enter the battlefield under their control this turn, they return a land they control to its owner's hand. Elegant design. Pretty pretty intuitive, if you think about it. <laughs> well, no. Yeah, this one showed up a little bit so far as sort of the mirror breaker versus for the Omnath decks. So that's the idea. And, I, and I've seen it be, be played also like in Demir Control because it, it, it does draw you a card. So the, the, obviously the cost of playing this isn't super high. I think that the the... I've, I've had mixed results in playing with the card or watching the card where sometimes you play one and it it can be pretty effective. It can slow them down. And especially once you get a second one out, they, it, it really puts a damper on what the Omnath decks are trying to do. But sometimes you play one and it, it has no effect or potentially a downside where it, it actually lets them bounce and replay lands when they wouldn't have been able to play those lands they, when they would run out of lands. Yeah, Against Dryady the Elysian Grove, which lets you play an additional land each turn, if your opponent confounding conundrums you, all of a sudden you just get this ability to be able to play multiple lands by just not even drawing more, by just playing the same one multiple times in a turn as it gets bounced back to your hand. So, yeah, it's a tricky one. People are still sorting it out, but I I agree. I'm not sure. Somebody's going to figure out exactly the best sideboard plan for the sort of the Omnath Mirror. And some people right now think it's for confounding conundrum, but what remains to be seen. Uh, the next card is Seagate Stormcaller. So this was a card I've been excited about uh, since it got previewed. And this is the that sort of that blue two drop that when you play it, the next spell you cast that costs two or less, you get to copy it. And so far, we've already seen this card showing up in older formats where it can just sort of do solid things like copy village rights, copy metamorphose. And the big thing is what it's going to potentially do to historic because of the combo with the card Neoform. Neoform is green and a blue, sack a creature. You get to play one from your deck with CMC one greater. Well, what you do is you storm call, Seagate Stormcaller, play Neoform, 
find another Seagate Storm call, or sorry, find a dual caster mage from your deck. Then you get to copy the Neoform. Then you get, and so now you still have two Neoforms on the stack. You get another dual caster mage and you just keep going back and back and back doing that. Then you start getting Glass Pool Mimic. That's the card we mentioned earlier, copying your dual caster mage. Then you get Tuck Tuck Rebel Ford. It gives all your creatures haste. And bam, you just get to one shot kill them from you know just having four mana and two cards. Some people uh, have called that a Splinter Twin combo in the past. <laughs> yes, they have. This one's a little different because there is a limit on how much damage you can do. Uh, you know, because it, it, it's not infinite. It's as many dual caster mages and glass pole mimics as you, as you have. Plus, you have to get a Tuck Tuck Rubble for it at the end. Uh, there are other creatures that can increase the damage dealt, whether it's like Combat Celebrant. I'm sure there's other options too that can let you get in for a little bit more. But yeah, this is certainly a dangerous combo. It requires blue, blue, green, one colorless. So four mana total. And again, two cards. Not Neoform is not a great card by itself. That tends to, it, it tends to be a combo piece more than anything else. But Seagate Stormcaller is no slouch. Like if you play this deck and have a bunch of good utility spells alongside this, sometimes you just play Seagate Stormcaller and then copy a good spell and, and you've gotten your value's worth. Next up, let's talk about Felidar Retreat. So this is sort of the super enhanced Retreat to Ameria from Battle for Zendikar. And we've seen this card do a ton of work already in the Omnath decks because for a four mana white enchantment, every time you play a land, you can either get a 2-2 or give all of your creatures plus one, plus one and counter and vigilance this turn. And so, I mean, it, it's not complicated. You put this enchantment into play, then you play a lot of lands and it just does a tremendous amount of work that never really stops. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's a card that was already borderline playable, somewhat playable. Like, you know, uh, some people actually from your team at the time, uh, I think, played this card in a Pro Tour, uh, Retreat to Ameria. This not only doubles the size of the creature you get, but in, instead of pumping your team to under turn, it's permanent. It's plus muscle encounters. Like, if that card was borderline playable, how good is this card? And the answer is quite good. This is a, it's a pretty potent threat. I also like the idea of this out of an aggro deck against people with sweepers and removal. Imagine your like white weenie deck if such a thing exists or curves out and then plays this on four. Your opponent is going to be like, well, I can wrath and then you're going to be able to reset your board every turn pretty easily. Yeah, and because of the modal double face cards, if you're playing some of those, you're going to have better ability to be able to play lands every turn. So next up, let's maybe Blood Chief's Thirst. So this was a card that you and I were very high on coming into the set and I would say so far it has been a, a little bit disappointing in standard, but I don't think it's totally Blood Chief's Thirst fault. The biggest thing going on with it is that just the creatures you want to kill are like Lotus Cobra at instant speed and then these mid-range creatures. And Blood Chief's Thirst doesn't excel at that. The format just doesn't really have the good one and two mana attackers that are going to really value you having such a flexible tool at dealing with them. Well, when we talked about this card earlier... The biggest selling point for us is that it was an A-plus against aggro and a C against non-aggro. Well, if people aren't playing aggro, this card's not going to be good. People are playing aggro right now, but not at the, not at a, at a high, like, there's not a ton of it. And I ex- kind of expect it to go down unless the aggro decks have really solved the Omnath matchup. Because the Omnath matchup has a lot of tools against aggro. Yeah, and even against something like Gruul, which is an aggro deck, you know, there's a good variety of ways to deal with Robber the Rich. Maybe, you don't need to answer it immediately. Questing Beast, getting to answer that very efficiently with something like Heartless Act is going to be quite nice. And so I, I, I do like Heartless Act a little bit more in the early going of the standard format. 
so an in, uh, there's a, a couple more blue cards I want to chat about. One was Jace Mirror Mage. So <laughs> Jace is a uh, one blue blue for a four loyalty Jace Planeswalker. It has plus one scry two and zero. It lets you draw a card and reveal it and remove loyalty equal to its CMC from Jace. But it also has a kicker of two colorless and it gives you another Jace, except it's got a starting loyalty one. Jace is a pretty effective way to draw cards. It doesn't do anything else than that. It's like it scries, you know, and then it draws cards. They're both kind of the same, but it has a has a lot of loyalty. And with the kicker, you can put a lot of annoying things out that you can also at the very worst just cash in to draw a card. Sometimes it'll kill Jace. But if you kick Jace and then scry with the big Jace, then flip a land with the small one, like you're you're really making making a good profit there. Yeah, every time I ever see Jace Mirror Mage, though, I, my heart just is like, oh, if only there were lands on the front side. Because then you could draw spells with Jace. Very oh, easily. yeah. So that's the one little awkward thing about this card is that a lot of your lands in your deck are going to have real CMCs. So it's going to be a little bit harder to sort of use that Dark Confidant-like ability where sort of Jace is taking the Dark Confidant damage instead of you when you flip a card from the top of your deck. <laughs> Uh, I think the biggest thing for this card is it's sort of the comparison that we'll shake out with it and Gadwick the Wizened is sort of three mana-ish with upside blue card drawing effects. And, you know, we'll see. It's still too early to sort of tell whether or not Jace or Gadwick is sort of going to reign supreme for being the card draw option, sort of these Demir control decks. Uh, one that's... There's only one specific interaction I want to mention is Thieving Skydiver. So this is one in a blue, 2-1 Flying Merfolk Rogue. It has Kicker X and uh, X can't be zero. And when it enters the battlefield, if it was kicked, gain control of an artifact with converted mana cost X or less, I just I just want to steal Stonecoil Serpents. <laughs> it, you know, Stonecoil Serpents an awesome and card. And that does work. Yes, you have to pay one because X can't be zero. But for three mana, you get a two one plus you gank their Stonecoil Serpent because this is not multicolored. Like I like that Stonecoil's seen, seen a, a decent amount of play, but Thieving Skydiver as an answer to that is is awesome. Or if there's any other cheap artifacts running around. I think they'd made X, X not be zero because it would be so annoying and vintage. Just two mana, two, one, steal a mox. It's like, come on. Uh, Thundering Rebuke is a new red removal spell that's already seen quite a bit of use. And that is because it's just two mana, sorcery, deal four to a creature, a planeswalker. And Omnath has four toughness. So there <laughs> most, we go. <laughs> one of the more efficient ways to be able to get an Omnath off the Omnath, board. Omnath, questing Thanks. beast, random planeswalkers, whatever. Yes. So... Thunder Rebuke has already started showing up. I've seen it showing up in some of the Omnath lists as a way for them to be better at getting rid of opposing Omnaths. When BK steps uh, out of line, he gets a Thundering Rebuke. <laughs> all right. Well, that's not even true. All right. Zareth <laughs> <laughs> and the Trickster. So, you, Luis, you played the Rogue stack. Uh, so this is the that five-mana legendary Rogue that you could sort of ninjutsu in. What was your early impressions of Zerathsan? So uh, Zerathsan, yeah, it's a five mana four four flash. So for three blue black, and then it also has the ability of two blue black return unblocked attacking rogue to your hand, and Zerath comes in, taps and attacking, and whenever this hits them, you get to put a permanent from their graveyard onto the battlefield under your control. So this is yeah, some real real uh, fallen shinobi ink eyes ninja vibes here. So. Zerathsan is very powerful, and especially since a lot of the rogues do incidental milling, especially the ones you kind of already want to play in this deck, like, you know, Thieves Guild Enforcer or uh, <coughs> Soaring Sky Thief. Zerathsan is going to have a kind of a good good amount of things to pick from. The problem, I guess, with Zerathsan is you're going to have to put some creatures in your deck that are below par to enable Zerathsan. Is that worth it? 
it might just be. Zerathan is that powerful when you hit them. A four mana uncounterable, you know, four four that hits them and immediately puts something into play. Like, imagine you lead uh, on the one mana one on flying rogue that that mills them for one and you hit them. If you play that, then play another rogue and then maybe leave up a counter on turn three. You've milled them a few times and you Zerathan and you just land like one of their planeswalkers or a decent creature. Like that, that's a pretty big game. And Zerathan can even uh, end up. Uh, putting lands into play if you really need to. So it's worst case scenario, you're getting something. That said, you have to reliably have an attacking rogue to make this work. If you're just casting this for five mana, it's not going to really do what you want it to do. Yeah, this this is sort of the centerpiece card for sure of the rogue stack. And, you know, it'll be remain to be seen how powerful the rest of the tools go. I think the best thing that rogues sort of have going for it overall, it's just the fact that you can play a bunch of counter spells since a lot of your threats are flash and then you get some added ways to sort of combat the omnet deck all right louis should we move on to the nonsense rules interaction time part of this oh yeah show? all right so there's a card called Morog fury of akum which actually seems like it could also be playable by the way it, it it's a six mana six six it says each creature you control gets plus one plus oh for each time it's attacked this turn and it has landfall whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control if it's your main phase there's an additional combat phase after this one the beginning of that combat, untap all creatures you control. So BK, what, what's the issue with this? You seem to have a problem. <laughs> so it's really, it, the card is like really loud that you should play this on your main phase. You should play a land and then you get an extra combat step. And then once you start doing the attacking, you'll get plus one plus O oh, and, you know, it does the whole like untapping thing. The, the really wonky part about it is that you don't always get to untap your creatures. And so... From, from it, um, because the card says that there's an additional combat phase, phase after this step, you untap all of your creatures. If you don't do this, I, I guess I don't even understand. What is the right order? I'm, I'm, I'm kind of confused. <laughs> all right, well, it. yeah, let me explain it to you. Yeah, the first thanks. time I cast this card, I cast this, played a land, attacked with my creatures, and hoped I was going to get another attack step. I did not. Well, I got another attack step, but they were all tapped. Because what happens is... You play a land during your main phase, and immediately your the next phase is a combat step, and you untap all your creatures. But because I did it first main phase, all my creatures are already untapped. So they attacked during that extra combat, and then didn't untap, and I had my normal combat, but they had nothing to attack with. What you want to do with this is play this, attack with your two creatures. They each get plus one plus oak, because they've attacked once now. Second main, play a land, pass, all your creatures untapped, there's now an additional combat, you can attack again. Simple. Easy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love I love when the 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 epic flashy mythics get into really finicky situations about when to time your land drops in the turn. Yeah. Because it already is like very restrictive. Like if you accidentally like crack the land at the beginning of combat, the card just doesn't do its thing because you weren't technically in a main phase. Yep. It's actually really funny. I remember because this came up on uh, on stream uh, when I was streaming with uh, Day Nine and someone in chat, as well someone was like, it's not that complicated. You just have to do it second main because of blah, blah, blah. And it's like when you're telling someone something isn't complicated, you've already kind of lost. Because if someone says, hey, this confuses me and, so you, and your answer is, no, it's not that confusing. Let me explain. You're already kind of fighting an uphill battle. And sometimes you can't explain it and sometimes you can't. In this case, look, I get what the card does. I'll play it right now. But the first time I played it, I played the card wrong. And I don't know. I do a pretty decent job of reading cards. The next one is Cargan Intimidator. So 
this is a real callback. This is the red two drop in the set that is a human warrior three one that has the text cowards can't block warriors. And what's the what's the original card that had that text box Elise? Bold weird intimidator. Okay. And yeah, the sweet thing about sort of the cowards can't block warriors is that it's a very flavorful idea, right? Well, Cargan Intimidator takes it a step further with its activated ability of you can pay one to make target creature become a coward until end of turn. So that seems pretty sweet, right? Like I can, you know, make my opponent's creature a coward. I can scare it and then I can just attack right past it because cowards can't block warriors. Here's the weird thing about this card is it doesn't say target creature becomes a coward in addition to its other types until end of turn. It just says it becomes a coward. So you can really do some wonky things with this. For instance, you can disrupt party cards. So if they try to cast a card, which is going to scale based off the number of creatures in their party or take advantage of having a full party, you could just pay one and make it into a coward and it loses all of its types. And so all of a sudden you're just fizzling their card with this onboard trick because you had a mana up. It's really bizarre. And then the other really strange way is that it lets you target your own creatures to make them cowards. And so because of that, you can make things like itself, which is a human, into not a human, just a coward. And now it works with Winota, and it's triggering Winota. (laughs) So, like, it's got all this really good flavor to it, but the exact way that it was implemented means it's going to be really powerful in a bunch of situations where you're just kind of doing these nonsensical things, like making your own creatures cowards and saying, you're not a wizard anymore. (laughs) I I don't... I don't get it. Yeah, it it's funny how impactful that line on the card is, despite it kind of playing back uh, an old joke. Uh, I guess we could talk about Lotus Cobra and Omnath, but honestly, like, why? Like, we, we, we're going to talk a ton about them. People know what they do. Like, yeah, these cards are ridiculous. Like, Lotus Cobra is not a ridiculous card. Lotus Cobra, I think, is a, is a powerful card. It, it, it takes some work to get some additional bang for your buck out of it. It dies to Spike Build Hazard. I don't really have a problem with Lotus Cobra. Omnath, I don't understand. Like, I don't understand why it draws a card. I don't understand why it just pays you off for the exact thing people are kind of sick of losing to. But that said, these cards are already seeing a ton of play. It's not going to be surprising that we're going to continue to watch Omnath kind of uh, do its thing here. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how the next couple weeks of the format evolve. For you, Luis, you've got the season grand finals that you qualified for as a result of the Mythic Invitational. That's going to be coming up, I think, in early early mid-October. Is that right? Yeah, so it's, it's like October, I don't know, 12th-ish, in that vicinity. So I, I am looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to... If I had to lock it in right now, which I don't, we're pretty far away. It'd probably be Jun Company, Omnath, a little, little, little tag team action. But we'll see where I end up because it is both standard and historic. So that's kind of cool. You get to play a, a mix of decks. Yeah, that's so that's an arena tournament that's going to be both standard and historic. So we'll we'll be following closely. And I'm, I'm thinking I might help you out again since it went so well the last time and you were reasonably respectful and about it <laughs> yeah yeah we'll, we'll we'll get we'll get some good action going uh that'll do it for this show we're gonna we're gonna be you know focusing on kind of the effect of zendikar on uh standard pioneer any other formats we play historic at this point i'm playing a decent amount of it so certainly more shows uh in the future that will take a little bit of a deeper dive but wow th- these double face cards are really going to impact all the formats like you said and uh, i'm kind of looking forward to seeing seeing how that ends up playing out obviously like whether it's going to be good or bad, we you know we're just going to find out. But I like new stuff, and it is it is at least something new. So that will do it for this week. Of course, our sponsor is yep. Channel Fireball. All right, you want to take us home, Louis? 
For sure. Uh, our sponsor is uh, GentleFirewall.com, and uh, this is one of the cleanest outros you'll ever hear. So <laughs> I'm LSV on Twitter. And- yeah, we take a week off, and the chemistry just goes down the floor. Yeah, it really does. BK's uh, <laughs> at Abext on Twitter, and uh, as always, feel free to tweet at us with your constructed or otherwise questions, and we'll see you next week. All right, so I want to give people a warning before I start doing any kind of sign-off for this episode. I am going to touch on the topic of bands in Magic the Gathering standard. And so I know some people hate that discussion. They don't even want to talk about it. They don't want to listen to it. So get out now while you can. All right, if you're still here, there's been a lot of talk about banning Lotus Cobra or that Lotus Cobra was a mistake to make. And it's kind of like driven me in, in standard for the last like year or so is that People get to play with ramp effects, and they're very difficult to interact with. Wilderness Reclamation, just being an enchantment, giving you mana immediately that turn. Fires of Invention, being in a four-mana enchantment that immediately paid you back by letting you play another spell for free and then just doubling your mana for the rest of the game. Nissa having a ton of loyalty. Growth Spiral being an instant that you can't really interact with and just sort of cantrips and always smooths out your draws. These are just such impossible cards to deal with by just somebody just playing a normal sort of ABC magic deck. And then comes along a little Lotus Cobra. And I'm not saying the Lotus Cobra isn't powerful, because it is. But the card has one toughness and only does a little bit the turn that you play it. And that's assuming you still have another land drop to make. Otherwise, it just does nothing. And I get why people are frustrated by the card. Because it does do a lot, and it leads to some explosive turns. And when you play against it, potentially right now in the Omnath deck, People follow up Lotus Cobra with a crazy amount of card draw and explosive effects afterwards, like Genesis Ultimatum, Escape to the Wilds, Omnath. And none of those cards are good when you're reacting to them. It's very hard. They're sorceries. They provide you a tremendous amount of value, and it's hard to undo what they do. And so people put all of the blame on this little snake because they realize that if they don't kill the snake early, it, things are just going to spiral totally out of control. But the problem isn't Lotus Cobra. The problem is all the other stuff. The other stuff you can't answer to unless you literally have counter spells and you can't come back against and you can't deal with the massive amount of value that Omnath is giving you every turn just for playing a land. So there's absolutely zero hope of ever catching up to what it does. So I just hope that people, this is just my perspective. You know, if you really get sick and tired of the snake and want to band, that's you're fine. You're entitled to your opinion. But the fact that it's so hopeless to fight back against the cards that happen from the Lotus Cobra mana is likely more indicative of a problem with those cards than Lotus Cobra. If people were Lotus Cobraing out Siege Rhino, that's a card that was very powerful and standard. You could just kill it and accept that you got drained for three and murdered. They gain four life and they make the mana that it used to cast Omnath right afterwards. That is such an impossible task to come back from that I think we really need to be reevaluating how strong some of these payoffs are and just sort of generating you more additional resources for your mana. Lotus Cobra is an exciting card to play with. It's been a very popular card in older formats. It was strong in the original Zendikar, but it didn't absolutely dominate and take over. So I think people need to just take a break on the snake. And no, Gabby Sparts did not pay me for doing a PSA on how Lotus Cobra is just a good little snake, but I'm happy to do so anyway. <laughs> Luis, you got any thoughts on the snake, friend? Uh, I think the TLDR is that the, the 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 payoffs are more the issue than the ramp spells, but... Uh, and especially ones that can be interacted with. Lotus Cobra can be interacted with. Growth Spiral really can't. So. Yeah, I mean, we saw so many. Like, Good luck coming back against the Fires of Invention. Also, by the way, Fires of Invention and Omnath was at one point going to be legal. Can you well, the, 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 the list of cards that should all be legal right now is just absolutely bananas. So, 
Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see about that. All right. <laughs> we'll see you next week. <laughs>